Just going to spend a few minutes looking at God's word together. Um, Should we pray? Father God, we just pray now as we look at your word. Lord, we know that you speak to us by your spirit. And Father God, we want open hearts. Um, And so Lord, actually, let's let's just all take a moment and just ask God to speak to us wherever we might be sitting. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to each one of our hearts, Lord. That you would challenge us and remind us and, Lord, just draw us closer into who you want us to be. Father God, so often as sort of sinful human beings, we spend our time wandering and trying to make you in our image. But you're you're trying to make us in your image. Lord, we're supposed to reflect you, not the other way around. And, Lord, we pray the forgiveness for those times when we try to make you what suits us. Father God, this morning as we think about your kingdom, that, Lord, you would... Um, mould us, Lord, to be model citizens of it. Lord, bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're living in strange times, aren't we? Um, you'd have noticed that I've not mentioned, not mentioned the football um, last few weeks, and I'm going to continue that. Um, but perhaps I should mention the tennis at some point. But, um, but we live in strange times, not because of sport and things like that. We live in strange times because perhaps for the first time in a long, long time for many of us, uh, we face a very unclear future. Um, not necessarily uncertain, but unclear. We're not quite sure um, what's going to happen in the next two to three, four, five, ten, fifteen years. And for many of us, Uh, Many who are older, you know what this feeling feels like. You've been there in two or three different situations. But for many of us, this is the first time the future is genuinely quite uncertain. You can't sort of say it'll be that or that. It could be all manner of things. Our main political leaders seem to be changing almost every day. Well, I say changing. Jeremy Corbyn, bless him, is sort of hanging on. Um, Not everybody is changing. Um, Our institutions are panicked. Um, Our Our experts are at a complete loss as to what to advise us, predict, or even suggest of what might happen next week, let alone 10 years down the line. It's really interesting that 2,000 years ago, when Jesus entered history, the people of Israel were desperate to come out of a large, um, almost global organization. There was infighting in their nation. There was inequality in that nation. Many people had much, whilst the vast majority had nothing. Some people were desperate to keep the status quo. Others wanted revolution. The majority just wanted to get their heads down, work and live in peace. I wonder if the world Jesus entered was a lot different to the world we live in in the 21st century. And what's really interesting is that as Jesus entered history, as he entered a fragile nation not quite sure of its future, not quite sure of what it would be like in 10, 15, 20 years' time, not unlike the UK at the moment and Western Europe, Jesus brought a message, a message, uh, a much-needed message, one of challenge but also one of hope. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, almost the first thing Jesus Christ said as he entered the world was this, repent. For the kingdom of God is near. Turn from your sin. Stop sinning. Stop disobeying God because his kingdom is on its way. It's near. It's nearly here. He spoke into the division of the people of Israel, of that nation. He spoke into their fears. He spoke into their anger. And he pointed them not into a better way of being there, but he pointed them not to the Roman Empire or nation of Israel, but to the kingdom 
of his Father in heaven. And Jesus spoke often of the kingdom of God. And it's something we don't often use. We don't use that phrase very often. If we say the Lord's Prayer, we might say, Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. But we don't tend to talk about this kingdom of God. Yet it's littered all over the pages of the New Testament. If you were to open up the Gospel of Mark and make a note of every time the word kingdom is used, it runs into double figures. Because it was a central part of early church understanding and thinking. They didn't think of earthly kingdoms. They didn't think of past kingdoms or global kingdoms. They thought of the kingdom of God. That is what they served. That is how they lived. They lived in that kingdom, not in the kingdoms of men. And Jesus spoke often about God's coming kingdom. The kingdom that was here with him, but was yet to arrive in all its fullness. He said it was near, but it was more to come. And it was a kingdom, we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, that is unshakable. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The kingdom of God, uh, the Bible tells us, Jesus clearly teaches, is unshakable, is powerful, is majestic, is mighty and to belong to this kingdom Jesus says over and over isn't for the rich or the well connected not that money necessarily stops you knowing Jesus although it's a lot harder the more stuff you have to give it up and follow Christ but it's not for the rich or the well connected but this kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit the humble those whose faith in God is innocent and clear like that of a child. In Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Mark chapter 10, verse 14, again, just as I've just said, verse 14. Sorry, Matthew. <laughs> it does not say that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, let me tell you. That's about Sodom and Gomorrah and wiping sand off your feet. Uh, We won't go there this morning. Maybe another time. Um, (laughs) Next week's sermon, perhaps. Anyway, so the little children come to Jesus, and uh, his disciples rebuke them. But he says, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Kids are so often innocent, aren't they? They take things, not at face value, but they take things, and when they believe them, they believe them with all their heart. And it's often us adults who become cynical and a bit jaded, and we say, well, you know, maybe that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. You tell a child that God performed a miracle, and what do they say? Brilliant. You tell an adult that God performed a miracle, perhaps it was mass hysteria. Perhaps sometimes it is. But really? Is that really mature adult faith? No, thanks. I'm going to go back to being a kid. It's much more easy. So today, our world needs to hear, amongst all of our global uncertainty, that there is actually a kingdom out there. That there is a king worth trusting. That there is a king in a kingdom on a throne who is above everything. With whom all things are beneath his feet. The Bible says of Jesus that all things are underneath his feet. To mean 
underneath him. He's above all things. He's got the power over absolutely everything. And the next couple of weeks, I want to just think about this kingdom of God and what it means for us. Because it means something. If Jesus talked about it a lot, that it means something. I always remember that, um, is it the BT advert where Maureen Lippman goes in to buy something in the shop and every time she goes in, um, anyone under the age of about 40 won't remember this advert anyway, um, and, uh, and every time she buys it, they say, sorry, Mrs. Jones has bought that. And she goes to another appliance, uh, sorry, Mrs. Jones has reserved that as well. And after about five things, she finally finds one thing that Mrs. Jones hasn't reserved. And so, would you like that, madam? She says, well, it's not good enough for Mrs. Jones, it's not good enough for me. <laughs> and so, if it's good enough for Jesus to talk of the kingdom of God, this coming kingdom, this rule of God, if it's good enough for him and Paul and people like that in the New Testament then it's good enough for us. We said a few weeks ago, didn't we, that um, the unshakable people on this planet are those whose feet stand first and foremost in the kingdom of our eternal God. Daniel chapter 4 verse 3 reminds us that this kingdom of God isn't temporary, it's everlasting. It's going to go on forever. There is going to be nothing that's going to supersede God and his throne and his coming kingdom. Psalm 45 verse 6 tells us that the symbol, the scepter of this kingdom, the symbolic um, sign of what this kingdom is going to be run by, isn't military might or aggression, but uprightness. God's kingdom is laced, its DNA is righteousness and goodness and uprightness. And we belong as Christians, first and foremost, to that kingdom, the kingdom of God. In a sense, Those of us who are British or Chinese or South African or some other nationality, we are those things second, but we are citizens of our king first. When someone asks you where you're from, I dare you, don't do it because they'll think you're weird, but I dare you to say I'm from the kingdom of the eternal God. And I'm British as well, or I'm Indian as well, or I'm Chinese as well. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Because when Christians meet together and they understand their citizenship in heaven, racial barriers disappear, gender barriers disappear, age disappears, because who cares? Because we're all citizens of God's coming kingdom. And therefore, as Christians, our job isn't to build the kingdoms of men and women, but to build the kingdom of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 describes us not just as members of God's kingdom, but something Even more amazing than that, it describes us as the very bricks of God's kingdom. 1 Peter, um, chapter 2, verse 5, Peter writes, says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, the Bible calls you a rock or a brick or a stone in the temple, the building that God is building. God's kingdom that is coming to earth isn't made in some church somewhere, but actually it's you or I who trust in Jesus Christ. We are its bricks. If you've ever done bricklaying, I've only done it a few times, but uh, most people that do bricklaying always have a few bricks left over from the previous wall that fell down. And so, uh, and so when they go to do it, and there's a two-stage process, isn't it? You get the brick, um, and what do you do first? The trail in this hand. I didn't know what it was, just in case you're wondering. And what you do is you look at the brick, 
and you knock off the old mortar that was used before. And then once that's all gone, what do you do then? Have a good look at it and you check that it's fit to be used on your new building, your new wall. And really, as Christians, we need to understand that that is what God is always doing for us. We are always saved. Put that over there. But what God does to you every single morning is he wants to take his holy trail and he wants to knock off those sins that cling to you, that entangle you. And he wants to take those off of you. And that hurts because it's like that. And sometimes it's the most painful thing when God chips away at your sin. But he does it because he then wants to use you in his kingdom-building exercise. Alongside that, as more of a challenge, God is also inspecting us as his brickwork to see, is this person someone I can actually use? How much weight can they have on them for my coming kingdom? So many Christians complain that God never uses them, but so many Christians refuse to let God to take the mortar off in the first place. And God ain't going to build something like that, is he? He's a master builder. So if you're not fit for purpose, you won't quite be used in the way you want to. You have to allow God to make you holy. So God builds his kingdom. And how do we build God's kingdom on earth? How is this uh, building being built on this planet? Well, simply the building of God's kingdom is through two ways. The first is the preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. When you tell someone that Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, God's son, that he died on the cross for our sin, and he rose again, defeating death, darkness, and Satan. You're preaching the gospel that you can be forgiven of your sin, made new, and live forever in heaven. And every time you preach the gospel, and every time someone becomes a Christian, that's another brick for God's kingdom. But not just that. We build God's kingdom when we live out the ethics and the morals, that uprightness, that righteousness of God's holiness in any context. And so this morning, I've just got a couple of questions about this kingdom. And the first is, what is the kingdom of God? And that may seem a strange question. Some of you might say, well, heaven is God's kingdom. Some of you might say, well, it's the church. The church is the kingdom of God. No. I've already answered my own question earlier on, I realize that. But the kingdom of God is the present eternal rule of God himself. God's kingdom is a shorthand term to describe the places where God is currently ruling. Think of the Lord's Prayer when Jesus said, um, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God builds his kingdom where his will and his rule are being expressed and lived out. So therefore the kingdom of God isn't the established church, which should breathe a sigh of relief to everybody. The church, as it is, you see it this morning, is not the kingdom of God. Because if it was, boy, have we done a bad job. It is not that. The kingdom of God equally isn't a collection of so-called Christian nations who form some sort of medieval alliance. That equally isn't the kingdom of God. No politician or vicar or priest can claim you're in the sacred presence of God's kingdom. It is the rule of God wherever it is expressed. Does God rule you this morning? Is God your king this morning? The kingdom of God is where God rules. I'll tell you a story. When I was in secondary school, a long time ago now, I was always quite a good boy, always have been, always will be, I guess. Um, and I remember going over, bunking off a lesson. No, it wasn't, sorry. No, I never did that. Um, I did it, well, I did it during um, 
revision, when you didn't have to go in anyway. Um, so I did safe bunking off. <laughs> it's a very sad thing. Anyway, um, a group of us went over the park at lunchtime. It was lunchtime. And uh, other people, not me, my friends, uh, bought some fireworks. And uh, I think they were bangers. And uh, being uh, good pupils from Mayfield High and Dagenham, they were living up to their reputation and throwing them around, lighting them and throwing them at each other. And uh, one of the girls came out and went, oh, I'm going to tell the head teacher of you. Panic ensued, not for them, because they were like, whatever, and they said other things. Um, I panicked, and I said, please don't mention my name. I haven't done anything. I've just stood here, because I was quite tough in those days, and uh, I've softened as the years have gone on. Anyway, I was sitting there in form, just after lunch, and the dreaded note came round to my form teacher. Mrs. Hannah, the head, wants to see Gary. I thought, oh, man, I know what this is about. So I prepared myself. I thought, right, be tough. You know, don't do the crime if you don't want to do the time or whatever they say. And I went into her office and, uh, and she looked at me and she said, who threw the fireworks? <clears throat> I don't know what you're talking about, miss. And then she shouted, who threw the fireworks? I burst into tears and I listed her, Jasmine, Anthony, Tony, Steve. And, uh, and then I got my head kicked in after a break. <laughs> but what amazed me most was that we were off school property and Mrs. Hannah was still in charge. She still had authority over the park because wherever we were, her rule and her authority stretched. And so it leads me to my second question. Where is God's kingdom? If God's kingdom is his rule, where is it? And that's a far more significant question. In one sense, God owns everything. Psalm 24 says the earth is the laws and everything in it. But where is the rule of God being realized? That is where God's kingdom is. So the where of God's kingdom isn't a physical location with a border. You can't say, I'm about to go into God's kingdom. God's kingdom is something else. In Matthew 13, we read the parable of the weeds. And in the parable of the weeds, Jesus talks about two lots of weeds and good, um, good plants coming up. And the kingdom of God is mixed up. Uh, with the sons of the world who are evil. Let me read it to you. And, uh, and it gives us a clue, it gives us a direct teaching on what the kingdom of God is. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in the field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go up and pull them up? No, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. And then verse 37, Jesus explains this parable. He says, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's him. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are the angels. The kingdom of heaven is a mixture, is the people of God who are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's where God rules in our hearts. In Luke chapter 17, um, I don't know why I keep putting my Bible down. Luke chapter 17, verse 20 to 21, Jesus again says this about the kingdom of God. 
He says the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is expressed where God's people, through faith in Jesus Christ, live his way. God's kingdom is within us. And of course, there will be a physical kingdom. At the end of the ages, the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven to earth. God will literally, physically live with us um, forever in heaven. But before that, the kingdom of God is where individuals follow Jesus Christ. So wherever we are, God's kingdom is. And that's something to really think about. It means that there's individual Christians living out the ethics and the morals of God in the context of their work, their school, their home life, etc., etc., etc. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered, there I am also. Because when we come together as his subjects, then the king comes to join us. Think about that. There's so much more to say, but we'll come on to it in the next two weeks. But enough this morning is the idea that God's kingdom is within us as followers of Jesus. And what does it mean for us this morning? Well, let me give you a few things to take away. The first thing that means is that as a Christian, I take with me wherever I go the holy ways of God. If God's rule is within us and his rule is good and all his ways are just and holy, as a Christian at work or at school, or as a governor, or a scout leader, down the pub with my friends on a Monday evening, at the dinner table with my family. I take the kingdom of God there with me. Sometimes we're in terrible workplaces, and we say, I hate my job. Why is God letting me stay here? I prayed because I want a better job. Maybe God has put you in that job because you take his kingdom with you to change that job and change those people. We're citizens of the King of Kings and he calls us to act in line not with the way the world works but the way the Kingdom of God works. How does the Kingdom of God work? Well, go and read Matthew 5, 6 and 7 and live it out in whatever context you find yourself in. If God's Kingdom is within us, it means, number two, that our times together are sacred. We never use the word sacred in churches like ours. We don't want people to be confused because this is not sacred ground. When we do a baptism, that's not holy water. We do away with that sort of terminology because it's wrong. However, our times together are sacred when God's presence is with us. Sunday mornings, our connect groups should not be seen as something to get through because you've got better things to do. But they should be seen by all of us as an amazing opportunity to gather together in the presence of our king do you meet up with people during the week who are christians maybe you've got kids the same age do you meet for coffee on a tuesday or a wednesday or some other day um and you you meet together on those times together do you pray whilst the kids are running around shouting do you actually pray or sing a song worship god together those of you that are coming down the pub on monday night uh, if we're all christians and it's just us are we going to talk about jesus or just a football some of you will be pleased if we don't talk about the football. But, um, but does God enter our conversation? When we have a Christian friends for dinner, does God get invited? Are we just like everybody else? Is the kingdom of God in those moments or not? Some of my most precious moments as a Christian haven't been at great Christian festivals or church services. They've been when I've been with a group, a small group of Christians, where we've been open, we've been honest, vulnerable, We've worshipped together. 
I remember being about 14, and, uh, or maybe it was a bit younger than that, and uh, a small group of teenagers in Goodmay's Baptist Church where I first became a Christian, and we used to get together and sing together. And I know if you're young, younger, you're probably thinking, what? Um, and some of you adults are probably thinking, what? <laughs> but they were some of the most precious moments of my early Christian life because we were vulnerable with each other, and God met with us. Nothing dramatic happened. We just sang, and we prayed for each other. But they formed my faith in a way that not doing it wouldn't have done. If you're not experienced in the presence of God and the kingdom of God in your connect group or your Christian friendships, you need to work harder to be in the presence of God. And the third thing that this links to is that our church should reflect the coming kingdom. Sunday morning services, uh, whilst are not the kingdom of God in themselves, they ought to reflect something of God's kingdom. And that's why when church is awful or boring or sinful or hypocritical, it breaks my heart, and I'm pretty certain it breaks God's heart, because we're supposed to be expressing what God's kingdom is like, the passion of it, the power of it, the majesty of it. And when we come together and it's dull or it's irrelevant or it's full of hypocritical people, I'm sure God must shed a tear i certainly do whenever i've witnessed those things because church is supposed to express the best thing that people can experience not the worst thing that people can experience so often we get caught in a tradition of doing things to break out of that and let god move mightily amongst us when people walk in on a sunday morning they should sense they've stumbled into heaven not somewhere else they should sense wow How have I never come here before? Because we're so open, we're so keen to worship God that his spirit moves freely. And number four, we need to preach the kingdom of God. We're very good at telling people Jesus died for them and they can be forgiven. And don't stop doing that. But we need to tell people that this world is passing away. That they need to build their lives on something solid In Acts chapter 28, we read that Paul's message into the day he died was the kingdom of God. There is something better coming, and only those who know Jesus will enter it. And that needs to be our message as well. So today, as I finish, do we act like we belong to the kingdom of God? Do we live like we belong to the kingdom of God? Do we speak like we belong to the kingdom of God? Will we make a difference at work and at home, not by fitting in, but by being radically different, living out the Sermon on the Mount, preaching Christ and bringing peace. God is the master builder. He is building his kingdom and we are his building materials. We are his bricks. The only question, if you're a Christian this morning, is simply this. Are we the sort of bricks that God can use? Let's pray. Father God, we just want to lift up, Lord, this whole thought about your kingdom. Father God, we've got more to say, of course, and Lord, it's a big topic. But Lord, it's an amazing topic to think of your kingdom, Lord, that's coming, that's arriving. And Lord, even more amazing is to think, not that we passively watch it grow around us, but Lord, we are part of its growth. You're using us, Lord, as its very building materials. Father God, we are your citizens, we are your people. Father, forgive us when we don't reflect your kingdom. Lord, the words we say or the way we react to things or, or the things we do when no one's watching. Lord, we want you to chip off our mortar that is not in keeping with the perfect building you're building. Father God, I thank you that church isn't the kingdom of God. But Lord, I repent and I say sorry for times when church doesn't express what your kingdom really is. 
Father God, may we as this church be different to that. May we buck the trend. May we be a group of people, Lord, who lift up our hands or our hearts and are desperate to worship you when we come into this place. Lord, we pray for our connect groups. That, Lord, whatever barriers there may be to intimacy or growth, that, Lord, you will remove them. That we would be a family. We pray, Lord, that you would make us in this church, Lord, a place that when people stumble upon us at Christmas or Easter or just on the odd chance, even if they don't get what's going on, then they might want to come back for more. Lord, not because we're anything special, because we're not, but because you are with us and your spirit works liberally and powerfully. Father God, may we not squander the privilege of being bricks in the kingdom of God. And Father, we lift this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.